Today's shear begins at the top line of Daflam and Aleph. You'll notice a Mishnah. In fact, as you scan down <coughs> this Daf of Gemara, you'll notice quite a few Mishnayas. Before we begin the actual text, we glance at the side where we have a brief introductory note. We call the Nosei, the topic. Hanoder mi shoivsei Shabbos. Someone who vows uh, not to derive benefit from Shovsei Shabbos. Uh, loosely translated, <coughs> we'll say those that observe Shabbos. Me'ochleishum, those who eat garlic on uh, Friday nights. Me'olei Yushalayim, those that travel to Jerusalem during the uh, thrice year <coughs> pilgrimage. And now we turn to the Mishnah. Hanoder Mishovsei Shabbos, someone who vows not to benefit from Shovsei Shabbos. Now, we should have pointed out maybe a moment before, when you're dealing with Nidorim, and we've seen this numerous times, it's important to emphasize that the, the translation does not have that much significance. What's more important is how the term is perceived, or how it's understood by the public. <clears throat> so, one who vows that he's not going to benefit from Shavsei Shabbos, Osir Yisrael vi Osir Bekusim. He is not allowed to benefit from uh, Jews, nor from the Kusim. The Kusim are a people <clears throat> that converted to Judaism many years ago. Their uh, conversion, we will say, is uh, under doubtful circumstances. So, this vow would uh, include not benefiting from Jews nor the Kusim. Uh, the idea of eating garlic has to do with uh, a practice that you find uh, mentioned elsewhere in the Shas, that it increases uh, uh, the male seed in the context of uh, procreation, and it was, uh, let's say, customary, or as we saw in Masech Ksubis, that uh, men would uh, cohabit with their wives uh, Friday nights. So the consumption of shum is understood in that context. So one who vows not to benefit from uh, he cannot benefit from Jews nor from the Kusim. The Gemara asks, and you'll see we have a double underline marking, one of our series markings. These <coughs> double underlines highlight the various stages in trying to understand who is Shovsei Shabbos. Who does that include? My Shovsei Shabbos, or what is meant by Shovsei Shabbos? We saw in the Mishnah that that does include regular Jews and the Kusim. But what's meant by that? If it's a reference to those that observe, that fulfill Shabbos, that practice Shabbos. My Iriya Bakusim, why speak about Kusim? Even Gentiles have a concept of observing Sabbath. Rather, Shovsei Shabbos is a reference to those that are commanded to keep Shabbos. So, who's commanded to keep Shabbos? 
Jews are commanded to keep Shabbos and uh, the Kusim having converted to Judaism. So they're included in that category. Ihochi, if that's the explanation, Emo Seifa, continue reading the Mishnah and you see it says, If you vow not to benefit from the Ole Yushalim, from those who uh, uh, appear in Jerusalem thrice annually, you cannot benefit from Yisrael, but you're allowed to benefit from Kusim. Why are you allowed to benefit from the Kusim? As people who converted to Judaism, are they not also commanded in the thrice uh, annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem? So, to explain Shosei, Shabbos, as referring to those that are commanded, doesn't hold up in a consistent fashion as you learn through to the end of the Mishnah. Elo Omar Abai. Notice we have a long marking here. Uh, Abaye explains when he vowed, he vowed not to benefit from people that are both commanded and practiced. The Mishnah is teaching, when it uses these terms, people that are commanded and also fulfill. With regard to the first two examples of the Mishnah, the first two sections that we've marked off Aleph and Beis, the Jewish people and the Kusim are both commanded and practice. The Oivdei Kechavim, with regard to Gentiles, idol worshippers, those that in fact uh, practice those things, true, they practice it, they're in the category of those that do, but they're not commanded. And the person vowing intended his vow to cover those that are commanded as well as do. When you come to the third category, bearing in mind that the vow concerns those that are commanded and also practice. So when it comes to the thrice annual pilgrimage, Yisrael are mitzuvin v'yoisin. Jews are, in fact, commanded and fulfill. Kusim mitzuvin v'yenom oisin. The kusim, though they're commanded by virtue of their having converted to Judaism, but they don't practice it. They don't, they're a, a, a sect, a group of people that don't fulfill that mitzvah. Uh, Rashi adds, they when they uh, their concept of pilgrimage is not to Jerusalem, but rather to Har Grizim, the Mount Grizim, where they uh, have their uh, we'll call it religious practices. The Mishnah. Before we continue with the Mishnah itself, we glance at the side. The Nosei. The topic here is Ha'oyser Hanosam Shel Bnei Noyach, someone who. Uh, says he doesn't want to benefit from B'nai Noach or someone that says he doesn't want to benefit from Zera Avroham the seed of Abraham the Mishnah person vows not to benefit from the B'nai Noach Mutur Israel, the Osir Be'oivdei Kechavim what uh, that vow in effect does enables him to benefit from Jews but not to benefit from idol worshippers from Gentiles the Gemara asks the man vowed not to benefit from B'nai Noach the Israel Minofik Michlal B'nai Noach do the Jewish people uh, exit leave the category of B'nai Noach are they not included in B'nai Noach Noach uh, preceded 
the formation of the Jewish people by many generations. So does does is it not so that the Jewish people themselves are descendants of Noah? The Gemara answers Kivan de Iktish Avroham once Avraham was designated or sanctified, Iskru al the Jewish people are referred to as the children, the descendants of Avraham. Once again, we have this uh, principle that when you're dealing with Nidorim, it's not a function of liter- uh, literal translations or literal descriptions. Uh, and here's a prime example. Technically speaking, the Jewish people are descendants of Noach. They're B'nai, B'nai meaning the children of the descendants of Noach. But when it comes to Nedorim, when it comes to how one perceives things, the Jewish people are not uh, referred to as B'nai Noach, but rather as descendants of Avraham, who himself, of course, was a 10th generation descendant of Noach. But uh, once again, we're dealing with uh, Nedorim categories, and the Jewish people are thereby uh, excluded from the category that we call B'nai Noach. The Mishnah. She'eni nehene lezera Avraham, osur b'Yisrael umuter ba'ovdei k'chavim. Person vows not to benefit from uh, Zerah Avram. What happens? He cannot benefit from Jews, but he is allowed to benefit from non-Jews, from Ovdei Kechavim, from uh, idol worshippers. The Yishmuel. Well, is there not Yishmuel who is in fact Zerah Avram? He's from the seed of Abraham. Abraham uh, mated with uh, Hagar and produced Yishmuel. So, how is it that the Mishnah says that when one vows not to benefit from Zerah Avram, he is in, fe- in, in, in effect allowed to benefit from Yishmael? The Gemara answers, Ki ksiv. The Pasuk says that Abraham's seed is identified as that which comes forth from Isaac, from Yitzchak. And the vow was Zerah Avram. He doesn't want to benefit from the seed of Abraham. So it's that only he who comes forth from Yitzchak, the uh, half-brother of Yishmael. So Yishmael is in, in, uh, in effect not considered Zerah Avram. What about Esau? The vow, uh, according to the Mishnah, he's allowed to benefit from, from the... Uh, uh, from Gentiles. Gentiles are included in the uh, children of Esau. But why? Is Esau not in fact a son of Yitzchak? And we just said that he who comes forth from Yitzchak is considered Zerah Avraham. So the descendants of Esau should be also as well, uh, forbidden to benefit from as well. The Gemara answers, Be Yitzchak, below Kol Yitzchak. When looking at the Pesach that was cited, it said, Ki Yitzchak. The base means from within Yitzchak is going to be your seed. Now, from within means, but not all. Not all of Yitzchak. Yitzchak produced Yankiv and Esau. So, which part of Yitzchak is going to be considered the Zerah Avram? He who comes forth from Yankiv, not he who comes forth from Esau. Hence, Esau is likewise excluded from Zerah Avram. The uh, next Mishnah is introduced on the side by a topic heading. 
will deal with someone who is ha'oyser es atzmo milhers misrael, a person who imposes on on himself a prohibition of benefiting from Jews. Another vow will be someone who is oser who benefits ha'oyser yisrael milhenos mimenu. He prohibits other Jews from benefiting from him. In which way will it be allowed to conduct transactions, business transactions, purchases and sales? The Mishnah. A person vows not to benefit from other Jews. So if you don't want to benefit from other Jews and you need to conduct business, when you want to buy something from another Jew, pay more than the going rate. So if you're paying more than the going rate, you're not benefiting, you're losing out, which is uh, in conjunction, which conforms to his vow. He's okay if he pays more for it. And then, if you have items that you want to sell, and you want to, and and the customer happens to be a Jew, umocher bepochos, sell at a loss, sell for less than its value. So you're not benefiting. And now another vow: she Yisrael nenin li. I don't want other Jews to benefit from me. So now, if you don't want other Jews to benefit from you, and, and that's what your vow is, when it comes to purchasing from them, purchase, you'll buy from them uh, at an item uh, that will be a, a price that will cause him a loss. In other words, pay less than the value of the item, and so that the that other Jew is not benefiting. He's selling at a loss. When you sell to that other Jew an item, you sell it at more than the market value. So that other Jew is paying too much, so to speak, for the item. The ain't show me low, and he's, uh, no one's going to find anyone that will cooperate with that. That will, So that in the, at the end of the day, other Jews aren't going to be benefiting from him as he vowed. The Rashi says, "V'ein shomen lo." Rashi with a little star, a few lines down. Shalom to Adam sheish shomel lo b'davrzesh b'shvil nidro ye mocher lo b'zoyl v'ikach mimenu biyoker. He's not going to find anyone to cooperate with him uh, in order for him to be able to, uh, let's say, fulfill his vow. The Mishnah continues. She'eni ne'ne lohen v'hein li. He vows that other Jews shall not benefit from him, nor shall he benefit other Jews. So, his, uh, his uh, conduct, his, his uh, transactions, will then be with Gentiles. In other words, the issues of Hanor, who will benefit from whom, that will be relegated to the realm of Gentiles. He will have no dealings with Jews. As we go on in the Gemara, we have a topic heading, Din Shel Shmuel. Uh, Shmuel Shmuel's uh, Din will, will um, figure as central in this discussion, uh, and it will last until Omid Beis as well. On the side, we have the topic heading, Din Shel Shmuel, Halokech Kli V'yado Livdoik Im Isoi. person is in a shop, and he picks up a vessel, uh, he's in the home of a seller of a vessel. He picks up the item to check it out, whether he should buy it or not. And uh, because of circumstances beyond his control, 
it slipped out of his hand and broke. Now, it's not a function of negligence, but something of an onus nature. Uh, maybe uh, we should just a word, a general word of responsibility. Uh, when you, for example, volunteer to watch an item belonging to someone else, we call that a shomer chinom. So you, if, if something happens to that item, it depends how, uh, what, what the circumstances were that led to, let's say, the loss or the destruction of the item. So in the case of a shomer chinom, if the item is lost or stolen, you, as the guard, are exempt. The only responsibility you accept on yourself is an act of negligence on your part, only in what we call pshia. Another type of shomer is called a shomer sohar, a paid bailey. He is obligated if the item is lost or stolen, and certainly if he is guilty of an act of negligence. However, if something beyond his control transpires and that results in the loss of the item, in the ruination of the item, a shomer sohar is not obligated. There's a, an, a, another category of even greater responsibility. That's called a shoel, someone who borrows an item. Uh, the, the description of a borrower essentially is someone who receives total benefit without, uh, without paying for it in any way. He, it's, it's basically it's called one-way benefit. As a result of that, he is highly responsible for it if anything happens even if uh, an, uh, an, uh, a situation of onus of um, ruination of the item be- that is a result of something beyond his control he the shoel the borrower is nevertheless obligated there's a specific realm or, or example that a shomer, a shoel, a borrower is also exempt, but we're not going to mention. We need not mention that now. So Shmuel describes a person uh, inspecting an article, considering its purchase, and it became it was ruined. It was destroyed. Due to ones circumstances, I'm hesitating using the expression "it slipped out of his hands and broke." But if you understand the slipping out of his hands as an act of ones, as opposed to negligence, so then fine, we'll say it slipped out of his hands and broke. But uh, due to circumstances that he could not have controlled or he could not have anticipated, halokeach chayav al ones. As we continue reading the note on the side, we see that the customer is guilty. He has to pay for that. Therefore, we can say that the purchaser is considered someone who uh, is, uh, as we said before with regard to the shoel, the borrower, that all the pleasure is his. In other words, he it's one way he experiences the benefit and without uh, expending any uh, payment or services in return. And therefore, he is guilty for oinus uh, as well, for those uh, circumstances that led to the destruction even beyond his control. And that's how we describe the show ale as well. 
Kol uh, Now we, we turn to the Gemara. Omar Shmuel. Halokech kli min levakroi. Person picks up a vessel from a an artisan, a craftsman, uh, to check it out. Uh, is it you know is it worth uh, is it worth the money that I'm going to pay for it or if it's, is it is it nice is it something that I would buy and and uh, then conclude a purchase over it uh, or not and then I'll just put it back in its place the nanas biodo and it slipped out of his hands and broke chayef he has to pay for it. Almo Kosovar, Shmuel, you can see then holds, Hanoas Lokeach He. We look at Rashi, the first line under the Gemara. Almo Kosovar Hanoas Lokeachi, the Hanoal Lokeach, Bemekho Yosem Michel Moicher. When you look at a customer and a seller, the customer, the purchaser is considered benefiting more. Hilko Chayev. Therefore, he is chayev. That in the in the uh, net, uh, let's say, balance of things or measure of things, the purchaser is considered the net beneficiary, and therefore he's chayev. The gomar umakni nafshei, the customer resolves and uh, accepts uh, responsibility and obligation by hianor in exchange. For the pleasure, for the benefit, shamanichoi levakroi, the lo havi kenosei sochar. The customers will say is so thrilled that he's able to pick up the vessel to check it out that he he willingly uh, um, gives of, of of himself. He willingly obligates himself to care for the item under all circumstances and he's not viewed as a no say socher no say socher is what we described earlier as the paid bailey the paid bailey we explained before is someone that uh, is obligated for Denevo and Aveda but not obligated for Ines and as a result of this uh, willingness on the part of the customer in exchange for the pleasure that he gets in picking up the vessel and investigating and inspecting it, he binds himself, he obligates himself to compensate even under ones circumstances. So, the conclusion of the Gemara as far as Shmuel is concerned, Hanoas Lokeachi. Now, with that principle in mind, we analyze it with information that we saw in the Mishnah. Tanan. She'eni nehenem Yisrael A person vowed not to benefit from uh, fellow Jews. Mocher bepachos. He has to sell at a loss. If you sell at a loss, so then you're conforming to your vow. Avol. Shava b'shava lo, but uh, at market value, at equal value, at fair value, that would be usher. Now the ihanuas lokeachi, if in a purchase situation, in a sale situation, the um, 
the the lokech, the purchaser, is considered the net beneficiary, as Shmuel indicated, afilu shava b'shava. In the case of this vow, the seller should have been allowed to sell it at, at market value because who's the beneficiary? Not the seller. The lokeach is the beneficiary. Who, what was the vow? The, 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 the owner, the, the seller said, I don't want to benefit from Israel. So as a seller, even if he sells it at market value, he's not considered the beneficiary. So if he's not considered the beneficiary, why can't he sell it at market value? Why does he have to sell it at a loss? The Gemara answers, and we have a marking, which is explained on the side under the Mivneh. These are Nisyonos. These diamonds represent Nisyonos. Lahamid as a Mishnah b'mikrem isuyam. Attempts to set up the Mishnah under a specific circumstance. We want to set up the Mishnah under some consistent circumstance. So, what's the Mishnah talking about? Masnisin, the Mishnah that says that the seller, the one who made the vow, has to sell at a loss in order to conform to the vow, is Bizvino de Rami Alape. It's an article that's not worth its market value. It's a poor quality item. Uh, the, the literal translation of this expression is uh, of no relevance. So we're just going to explain that you're dealing with an, with an item that's uh, a very, we'll say, very bad quality. Uh, it's a, a, a highly depreciated item. It's not something, something for which there's very little demand. That's a, probably the best way to look at it. An item that any owner of it would, just, would be only too happy to get rid of it. So, if someone is selling an item that has, that has a very poor quality, if he gets a, its actual value, the, that seller is happy. He's happy he unloaded it. Therefore, selling it shava b'shava would be a violation of the vow. And therefore, in order to conform to the vow, he would have to sell this, this very uh, undesirable item at, a, at, an, at, an, at an absolute loss. Okay, so the Mishnah is explained uh, so far as dealing with Zvina de Rami Alape, poor quality item. Imke Nemo Resha, well, if that be the case, let, we have to now explain the earlier comment. We just explained the comment that's in Mocher B'Pochos, but preceding that in the Mishnah, it said, Lokeach B'Yoyser. Someone had vowed not to benefit from others. The Mishnah says, if that's your vow, so you have to pay more than the going rate for the item. But if you're dealing with an item that is Romi Alape, very poor quality, why uh, why does the, in order to conform to the vow, do you have to pay more for it? Even if you pay its actual value, it's not worth, it's not generally speaking worth your while. You're paying a, a market value of something that, uh, that is of very poor quality. So, you're not, uh, you, you wouldn't be in violation of your vow. So, why is it you have to pay more for it? And furthermore, uh, state the continuation of the Mishnah. 
It, in the Mishnah, it said, Shisrael Nanili, person vowed that he doesn't want other Jews to benefit from him. So, Lokeach Bepachos, Umocher Biyoser. Here we're going to focus on the Mocher Biyoser for the time being. If you don't want other Jews to benefit from you, so you'd have to sell at more than the market value. In other words, that then they're going to be they're paying more for something they're not benefiting. The If you're dealing with some really undesirable item, uh, highly depreciated, poor quality, uh, non no demand item, so afilu shove The mocher in this case should be able to sell it at. They will say at its at its equal value at its market value. Why does he have to sell it for more? If some other Israel is going to pay shavah b'shavah for a zvina the rami ape, so uh, the, that other Jew isn't going to be benefiting from the seller, and that would be conforming to the vow. The Gemara response: Seifa b'zvina charifa. This. Uh, this last section of the Mishnah is talking about an item that's quite the opposite. There's a high demand for it. Zvino Kharifa would be an item just the opposite of Zvino Daromi Ape, an item for which there's high demand. So now, being that it's an item for which there's high demand, and the vow said that, the, that other Jews shall not benefit from the owner, in order for other Jews not to benefit from it, they'd have to pay a high price, more than its value, uh, and and then we will say they're not benefiting. But shavah b'shavah is out of the question. Ihachi, if that be the case, so then lokeach b'pochos, if it's an item for which there's very high demand, uh, why is it then that the the seller, in order to uh, be able to let's say f- fulfill his vow, enable it to be sold for less than its value? In other words, when you when this Yisrael who doesn't want to benefit, what doesn't want others to benefit from him, he'll have to pay less than its value. Afilu shava b'shava. Even if he were to pay the actual value, since it's an item for which there's very great demand, the the seller isn't going to be benefiting from this uh, from this uh, person who vowed. Again, this person vowed that others should not benefit from him. So when he pays a a market a going rate for an item for which there's very high demand. Uh, the the seller in that case is not going to be benefiting from him. He could get more than shavah b'shavah for it. So using the analysis of zvino harifa to explain the seifa doesn't hold up. Ella, we continue at the top of Omid Beis. Masnisen b'zvino mitzah. The Mishnah is talking about a an average type article. That's being sold, bought or sold. It's not Harifa, and it's not Romi Alape. The Rashi at the top, Masnisa Bezvino Chamitza, 
Mitzah is from the word emtsa, middle, average quality thing, average demand item. To lo havi zvino harifa velo zvino derami ape lefikach shave b'shave lo. Therefore, paying the the let's say the equal value, the market value of it is not allowed. The zimnin havi hanuas mocher v'zimnin havi hanuas lokeach. Sometimes. In a case like that, the seller is benefiting, and sometimes the purchaser is benefiting, and you're dealing with uh, someone who had vowed that uh, either others shouldn't benefit from him, or he should not benefit from others. So, in order to, in order for uh, uh, for you to be sure, uh, when you're dealing with others, so you have to follow the instructions of the Mishnah, and then you're in. You're, uh, you're safe with regard to your vow. Sell for less, buy for more, and apply it accordingly. Ud Shmuel, Shmuel, who said that the lokeach is chayav, for picking up an item uh, and, it, and an onus happens, the, that, the, that customer, called potential customer, is, is guilty, bezvino harifa. That was reference to an item for which there's very great demand and as a result of that he is he feels a sense of a privilege or pleasure that he's able to investigate it to inspect it for purchase and if something happens at that point so in other words if ha- something happens pre-purchase it will say in anticipation of the purchase he's chayev for oinus now I emphasize the, what that the uh, we'll say the enjoyment from the vessel in anticipation of a of a possible transaction. At that point, he obligates himself to the highest level of obligation to even compensate in the case of onus. Tanyo kavose de Shmuel, and a Tanaic source supports Shmuel's approach. Halokeach minatagor, someone who um, let's say t- takes vessels. I don't. I'm I'm hesitating using the word purchase because as we go on in the source, you'll see that that's only part of the story. He takes vessels from a merchant with the intention of lishagron lebeis chomiv to send these to his father-in-law's house to send a gift to his father-in-law. The Omar lo and the we call the potential customer says to the merchant, "Imekablin demehem." If the if the family in, uh, in my if my father-in-law accepts, uh, we'll say the gift that I'm sending to him, then I'll pay you for it. The imlav, if they don't accept it, they send it back. They don't need it. They don't want it. Whatever. I'll pay you something. I'll pay you what's called a, a fraction of the value. The fraction of that is called tovasana. Literally, it's a, a certain amount that uh, reflects the the uh, the temporary benefit that he had from uh, having the we'll call it the the opportunity to present them with a gift. Uh, after all, when the family sees that he wanted to send them a gift, they feel a certain sense of indebtedness, and 
that that value, the value that you gain by their feeling indebtedness to you, we call that toivas hano. So it's a it's a fraction of the value of the item. And what happens? Neensu, the uh, the article, the kli, uh got destroyed under ones circumstances. At what point, though? Behalicha chayav. In the direction to the father-in-law's house, which is similar to what we described before, uh, before the potential transaction, before the potential purchase. After all, he said that if they accept the gift, so I'll pay you for it. So that's halicha. That's before the actual purchase would have taken place. Uh, something happened to the article. It got destroyed under ones circumstances. So this fellow, this uh, son-in-law, is have to compensate to pay the tagar, the merchant. On the way back, when they, when the father-in-law decided not to accept the item, so the at that point the the customer is he's not a customer anymore. The Chazara, once again, at that point when the when the family when the father-in-law's family rejected the gift, so it's going to be sent back and returned to the Tagar, to the owner, to the to the original merchant. So the the son-in-law is not a customer at that point anymore. He's not going to be buying it. So he's exempt for compensating because of the onus circumstances. At that point, he is considered a paid bailey, a person that we described in our introduction as uh, someone who uh, willingly watches an item in exchange for uh, pleasure, for pay, or other benefit. And here, the uh, son-in-law did get benefit in the sense that the uh, family saw that he was interested in giving them a gift, but he is no, uh, he's obligated no more than a no-say socher would be. And a no-say socher, as we said, is exempt if something happens under ones circumstances. So from this source, this is a Tanaic source that supports Shmuel, that uh, you, when you're considered a, a purchaser whose uh, whose net benefit is greater than the seller, and uh, it's something happens to the item before the transaction, even if it's a, an ones circumstance, you nevertheless are chayev to compensate for it. There was a Safsir is a, mer- a, a merchant or a middleman. He's someone that buys and he or he acquires items from a producer in anticipation of selling it at a uh, to a retailer or to the, the general public. We can call him a middleman or a an, uh, an agent. So this middleman or safsira, this merchant, he took a donkey from a donkey uh, raiser uh, to sell, and it, he wasn't successful in selling it. Bahadi dehodar isnis hamra on his way back, on his way to return it to the uh, uh, the, the donkey uh, uh, owner, the original owner. 
the uh, uh, the uh, donkey uh, died under ones circumstances. Chayvei Rav Nachman Lishlumi. Rav Nachman said, "You are obligated to pay, even though it's an ones circumstance, and it's uh, on your way back from the attempted sale. You have to pay." Eisvei Rava, the Rav Nachman. Rava raises an objection to Rav Nachman's ruling. We saw in the source just a few lines up. Ne'ensu behalicha chayev b'chazor poter. In the case of the uh, attempted gift giving to the father-in-law, we saw that if something happens to the item on the way back uh, after the father-in-law did not accept it, namely there's no transaction, there's not going to be any transaction, uh, so uh, uh, upon return, an onus circumstance leading to the destruction of the item, one is exempt. So we have dashed underlined key expressions. Rav Nachman's ruling was uh, upon return, in the case of the donkey sale, or lack thereof, upon return, it died under ones circumstances, you're obligated to pay. The Tanaic source says that under a return, under own, return plus ones circumstances, you're exempt from paying. Omar Le, Rav Nachman answers a, let's say, a simple or clear distinction. The return of the agent, in the case of the donkey, is not really a return. He's still on his way to sell it. What do we mean by that? If the safsira, the agent, would find a customer uh, on his way back to the original donkey owner, I feel above the base, even at the threshold of the door of the owner, the uh, agent finds someone interested in buying a donkey. Milo Masman, like, would he not sell it to that customer? So that you don't have a you don't have a situation that we can describe in halachic terms as chazora, as return from. And as a result, the Safsira is always considered on his way to sell until he actually gives it back to the original owner. And that's why he's, as we, in conforming conforming to Shmuel's principle, the lokeach is considered the net beneficiary and as a result obligates himself even to the the tune of ones obligation. The Mishnah. We introduce this with a topic heading under uh, under the, the Nosei heading on the side, Arlus Ubrismila. We're going to deal with terms, and here you're going to see how, to, to what extreme we take the the, uh, the concept of Nidorim, which, as we said before, does not reflect the actual translation, but the way things are understood or perceived. Arlus is an uncircumcised male. Uh, that's the situation of an, an, of an uncircumcised male, and Brusmila represents circumcision. Koinim, the Mishnah says, Koinim, Koinim is a, an expression of a vow. Shani nene la'arelim, he vows not to benefit from the arelim, uh, from the uncircumcised. Mutter ba'ar Yisrael v'osir b'mulei o'yvdei k'chavim. 
Who is he vowing not to benefit from? From Arelim. He's allowed to benefit from uncircumcised Jews. And he's not allowed to benefit from circumcised Gentiles. So that, physically speaking, someone might have the foreskin removed from their male organ. But that doesn't, that doesn't enable him to leave the category of an orel. Likewise, shaninen elemulim, a person forswears benefiting from the circumcised. Osirbarli Israel, he cannot benefit from uncircumcised Jews. But now, what was his vow? Not to benefit from the circumcised. So in vow terms, what that really means is he's not going to benefit from Jews. And therefore, he's, he's also to benefit from uncircumcised Jews as well. And he's allowed to benefit from circumcised Gentiles. His vow was not to benefit from Mulim. What we see very clearly here that it's not a physical phenomenon. She'ein ha'or lo kriya the idea of orel or orla is a um, a synonym for idol worshippers. Shenemar kichol hagoyim arelim, the whole base Yisrael are lev. Now it is we dash underline the key expression: all Gentiles are considered arelim, regardless of whether or not they're physically circumcised. The Omer, another pasuk that illustrates this, the plishti is an orel, non-Jew. The Omer, pen tisamachno benois plishtim, pen taloisno benois ho'arelim. And in this pasuk also, there is reference to Gentiles, and they are called benos, the daughters of the arelim. Even though Amongst all of those Gentiles, there are certainly some that have been, physically speaking, circumcised or were born without a foreskin. We call that nolad mohul. Nevertheless, they're all considered arelim. The Ran gets into a more, say, um, detailed explanation of why three psukim were cited here. We leave that to you to investigate. But for, for our purposes, you have three psukim featuring Arlus in the context of, of uh, the Gentiles, the Goyim. They're described as Arelim. Rebbe Lozer ben Azariah oimer meusahi ha'orla shenizganu ba rishoyim. The orla, the foreskin, is considered a source of disgust as we see the wicked are described using the term. Shinemar all of the uh, the idol worshippers, the wicked peoples of the world, are called arelim. You see a uh, double underline, which introduces a series of names that feature comments in praise of the mila, in praise of the of circumcision. Uh, the the mitzvah of circumcision, and we have a 
uh, note on the side under the Mivneh heading indicating that this triangle series marking will continue till Lamed Beis Omen Aleph. So that if you have Lamed Beis Omen Aleph available, you can you can uh, a bird's eye view, take a bird's eye view ahead of the Gemara and you'll see more of these on Lamed Beis Omen Aleph. Rabbi Shmuel Omer, Gedola Mila, great is the mitzvah of Mila, there are 13 different references of covenant between the Almighty and the Jewish people surrounding uh, this uh, practice, this mitzvah uh, of circumcision. Rabbi Yossi Omer, Gedola Mila, Great is the mitzvah of Mila that it supersedes the mitzvah of Shabbos, which is such a serious matter. Generally speaking, uh, on Shabbos, it's strictly forbidden to uh, cause any uh, bodily blood flow, to create an incision uh, uh, that would lead to blood flow. And yet, when the eighth day of a child, of a male child's life, falls out on a Shabbos, in other words, a child was born on a Shabbos, eight days later is his day for the bris milah, the bris milah is to be done on Shabbos. Rabbi Yoshua ben Korcha Omer Gedola Milah, Shalonitlo Loi Lemoisha Atzadik Oleo Afilu Meloi Shah. So important is the mitzvah of Milah that even someone as great as Moshe Rabbeinu who had amassed so many merits in his lifetime when it came to uh, we'll say an element of negligence with regard to his own son's circumcision he was uh, he was endangered. His life was endangered. Rashi cites the Pasuk. Uh, you can see where we have a little star. Uh, we have in the Rashi a, uh, we'll say, a text that's a little different than the Gemara, but it's the idea of the Gemara. When he appeared to be negligent with regard to Mila, Shnemar. Uh, says that the Almighty uh, appeared there where Moshe, where Moshe Rabbeinu was with his son upon his uh, return to Egypt, and it and uh, he was he was threatened with being killed for negligence with regard to his son's milah. Rabbi Nechemia Oimer, Kedoylo milah shedeches anegoyim. Mila is so important that even if there is the appearance of a nega, maybe you're familiar with the term saras, that appears on that part of the uh, child's anatomy, the Torah warns elsewhere, Yishomer benegat saras, one must avoid removing negoyim from one's body. But when it comes to Mila, when it comes to circumcision, if a nega appears at that uh, on the foreskin, one is allowed to, one is not not only allowed, he's obligated to do the mitzvah of Mila, for it overrides Nigoyim. 
Rebbe Oimer, G'day Lomila, Shekol HaMitzvah Shosavrom Avinu, Lo Nikra Shalem Ad Shemol. Mila is so significant in that we find by Avram Avinu who fulfilled many mitzvahs he was not considered complete until the fulfillment of that mitzvah of uh, circumcision Shinemar the Pesach says Hisalich Lifonai V'yeitomim and following that it says V'etno Brisi Beini Uveinecha so that the concept of tomim, of being complete, sholem, is associated with the bris, with the circumcision. Dovor acher, Great is the mitzvah of circumcision, that without it, the Almighty would not have created His world. Shinemar, koyamar Hashem, imloi brisi, yoimom v'laylo chukai shemai v'arts lo santi. If not for circumcision, so the laws of nature I wouldn't have uh, imposed, would not have created, and essentially I wouldn't have created the world. Now there's a, a great amount of philosophical depth to that. In the context of a Gemara markings, Dafyomi Shior, it's not really possible to. Uh, ex, uh, expound too much on this particular topic, but just uh, to maybe get a taste of one uh, possible philosophical uh, idea or approach that one might take to this is that Mila is not just one other mitzvah in the in the chain of 613 mitzvahs. Of course, each mitzvah uh, has its own great significance. We're not here to, let's say, downplay other mitzvahs, but we want to highlight what the Mila uh, represents. And we'll see actually later in the Gemara references to this idea. And that is, one should bear in mind uh, the Mila, uh, physically speaking, what, uh, where it's done. It's done on the male organ. And the male organ is understandably the source of a great amount of uh, say fulfillment of desire, a great amount of desire of uh, of, of male desires uh, are uh, fulfilled through that particular part of the male anatomy. What the Mila represents is a uh, say a form of control uh, over that area. The point of the we'll say of our existence in Oilam Hazeh from the traditional Jewish perspective is that the Almighty created the world with natural tendencies, with laws of nature and natural tendencies and it's the, the role of man to, uh, uh, to overcome simple bestial tendencies, simple uh, bestial type lusts and that it's a, a very common I'm just to give an example, it's a very common a very, very common mistake, at least at the time uh, that this recording is being made. There's the, uh, the unfortunate uh, um, popularization of the area that we would refer to as Mishkav Zohar, or homosexuality, with the uh, claim, for example, that, uh, what can I do? Uh, God made me that way. I was created that way. Well, that might be very well and true. 
and therefore, so what, that God, that God created you that way? That's just an example of, a, of what you're claiming to be a natural tendency. For you, that's your natural tendency. But so what? Judaism demands of each and every one of us to overcome the natural tendency. That's pretty much the, we'll say, the whole point of, we'll say, Tikkun Hamidos. A person might have a tendency to become enraged. And therefore, does that mean it's right to become enraged at everything that makes you angry? Absolutely not. We're supposed to overcome that natural tendency. Someone might have a tendency to uh, desire uh, other people's things. There are many people that are quite lustful. Does that mean that I have a right to yield to my lust and take other people's property? Absolutely not. So that the the claim of, uh, well, that's the way I was created. So I say to that, very nice, that's the way you're created. Does that give you license to live out that Absolutely not. Judaism is based on this concept that we have mitzvahs and we're also told that the, the true maximum pleasure uh, uh, is achieved when you fulfill the mitzvahs. Uh, needless to say, uh, let's use a, to, you, to illustrate that, we can use a very simple example of a, a person, let's say, finds a lost item of considerable value. Uh, the natural tendency would be, oh, here's a chance for me to keep this item and become rich. Uh, but, but yet, the, the Torah demands that one shall re- re- return. If he can identify the owner, if it's a, an item that can, can be returned, you have to return the item. Uh, and how many of us will, will, be, will readily testify that the feeling of pleasure that one gets in returning the lost item to its to its rightful owner is a, of of a we'll say of a, of a high level of pleasure, great a high level of satisfaction. Sometimes we use the expression as something that money can't buy. That even though the the item itself uh, might have been quite valuable and might have enriched you, nevertheless, by returning the item, you gain a great deal of pleasure. That's just a mundane example, but so is the case. If one uh, merits, if one is successful in fulfilling the, the mitzvahs, and especially the whole realm of mitzvahs that involve overcoming one's natural bestial tendencies, there we say the Torah, uh, the Torah says you will, in addition to uh, benefiting in terms of uh, the world to come, the sar of keeping mitzvahs, there's also a <clears throat> a spiritual pleasure <clears throat> that one gets from that as well. That is a an example, uh, I'll say, a, a type of analysis that might be appropriate in understanding that this Maimur Chazal, that Gedolah Mila, that if not for it, so the Almighty wouldn't have created His world. Just to repeat the main point, the world was created with a uh, with a great amount of opportunity to overcome natural tendencies and that's the purpose of uh, our presence in this world to earn schar to earn uh, to fulfill the will of Hashem and and uh, and through that we also gain a great deal of merit of course we're not saying that that's how one should lead his life just to gain schar but 
being that be that as it may, the purpose in fact in, in fact is to uh, rise to the challenge of natural tendencies and overcome them. And that's what the purpose of the world is, and hence Brismila, which which uh, uh, represents that, is the uh, reason for this uh, important Maimur Chazal. The topic heading that uh, introduces the Gemara, on the side you have a, we have a Nosei, Deos im Nisrashel Moshe Rabbeinu Bemilas Beno. We mentioned before, <coughs> using the word from that we saw in the Rashi, <coughs> that Moshe Rabbeinu was negligent in the uh, fulfillment of, of circumcising his son. Is that really so? Tanya. Rabbi Yoshua ben Korcha Oimer. Now, you'll note this name, Rabbi Yoshua Korcha, he appeared in the Mishnah as well. So he says, and here you can see where uh, Rashi uh, in the Mishnah used the text from this Brisa in the Dibur Maskel that we saw in the Mishnah that Mila is great, is so important and significant that all the merits that Moshe Rabbeinu had accumulated they didn't stand in his good stead when he was uh, lax, when he was negligent in Milo of his son. This is all uh, information that we saw in Rashi on the Mishnah. Omar Rebbe. Rebbe responds to Yeshua ben Korcha's analysis and he says, It's uh, heaven forbid your uh, describing Moshe Rabbeinu as being negligent. Nisrashel is an a- a expression of negligence with regard to Milah. That it was not the case. He was diligent with all mitzvahs, including Milah. However, if that be the case, why does it say that that the Almighty wanted to kill him? And we'll see that Moshe Rabbeinu was being judged on a very, very high standard. What, what, were, what were Moshe Rabbeinu's considerations? So, Moshe Rabbeinu, at this point, was commanded to leave Midian with his son. With his, uh, he took his uh, son, his sons, and his wife, and returned to Egypt. So he said, he calculated, should I uh, circumcise him, and then go uh, on the road, Sakonahi, that would be life-threatening. Without, trans- without getting into the details of this Pasuk, but we see that, uh, the, that uh, soon after circumcision, there is a great amount of pain, and it could be life-threatening if one, uh, right after circumcision, goes on a, an arduous uh, a journey, as Moshe Rabbeinu had to do, traveling from Midian back to Mitzrayim. Emoil yomim. Maybe I should circumcise him and then wait three days for the critical time period to pass and then go on the journey. That I can't do either. The Almighty said to go to Mitzrayim now. If Moshe Rabbeinu uh, 
didn't circumcise his son uh, immediately. Uh, so why was he? What was? Uh, why was he subjected to uh, to a punishment? The Gemara answers, and we continue at the top of Lamid Bezom and Aleph. Molon is, is an inn. Uh, Moshe Rabbeinu had in fact journeyed from Midian to Mitzrayim and reached the point that he was very close to his destination. At that point, the danger of traveling, the danger of a, let's say, newly circumcised infant uh, the danger posed to a newly circumcised infant no longer applied so he reached that point the, the malone the point of the inn and he he tended to we'll call the uh, the uh, the motel arrangements uh, before circumcising the child so it's a matter of, it, what appears to me, it's a matter of maybe a couple of minutes this way or that way. And since his order of priorities was, uh, was not the way it should have been, this is what uh, subjected Moshe Rabbeinu to heavenly wrath. Shenema, the Pesach says, Vahi baderech bamalon. The incident uh, involving Moshe Rabbeinu and the need to circumcise his son took place at the Malone, at that inn. Rab Shimon ben Gamliel Oimer Loyla Moshe Rabbeinu Bikesh Sotan Laharog Rab Shimon has a different take on things and says that the the Sotan the uh, prosecuting force of heaven that particular uh, Malach that prosecutes us uh, was not interested in killing Moshe Rabbeinu Elo he was going to kill the child. Shinemar ki chasan domim atoli, as the Posik indicates. Ki chasan domim atoli, tseire mi korui chasan. The term chasan refers to whom? Heveyomer ze hatinok. The word chasan is a reference to the, the child. <coughs> uh, the Ran says he becomes uh, a chasan. A chasan is a term very frequently associated with a groom in a marriage. A marriage represents a bonding between man and woman, between husband and wife. The brismila is a bonding between the Jew and the and the Almighty. So the the term chosan is associated with the child in this context. And the Pasuk is saying that the, the child is a chasan domim, domim uh, the child of blood, meaning that he was subject to uh, to death. To being killed. Dorash Rabbi Yehuda Bar Bizna Bishosh in Israshim Eish Rabbeinu Min Amila. You can see from the uh, words of uh, Rabbi Yehuda, he uh, follows the we'll say the spirit of Rabbi Yeshua Ben Korcha. So when Moshe Rabbeinu was lax with regard to Mila, uh, Bo Af Vechema. Now these words are commonly translated as 
uh, two forms of wrath, Af and Chema. In this context, they are references to angels that, will say, represent these two kinds of wrath. So these angels, Af and Chema, came, Ubaluhu, Veloshairu Mimenu, Elo Raglov. They swallowed uh, him up, leaving only his feet exposed. Miyad, Vatikach Tsiporot Sur, Vatikhroisis Orlas Benah. Moshe wife, who was on the scene, she took a, a sharp rock, and with that sur, she uh, uh, circumcised her son. Miyad, Vayiref Mimenu. And immediately, they, uh, the uh, angel left. The angels uh, left. They loosened their hold on Moshe. <coughs> At that moment, Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to kill those angels. Some say that he killed Li. I don't have Chema. But does it not say Kiyogorti that I was fearful of Af and Chema. So how can the opinion in the source say <coughs> that he killed Chema? Answer, number one, Trey Chema Havu. There are, are two angels that are called Chema. And one of them he killed. Viboy Chema, Gunda the Chema. Another approach is that it's a reference to Gunda the Chema. Uh, Rashi, on the upper part of the page, fourth line from the top, says, Chel Shalom, the entourage that accompanies that angel, is what he was afraid of. Aval Gufe Neherag. But the uh, uh, angel himself, called Chema, he did successfully eliminate. These are very, very esoteric points. We've mentioned many times in the past regarding our Gemara markings, Dafyomi Shurim, that from time to time we encounter uh, esoteric appearing Gemaras. Uh, it's beyond the realm of Gemara markings to delve into these kind of areas. So we recommend anyone who is interested to certainly pursue these things further. With that, we conclude our Shior for today.